This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. I'm Scott Greenberg, also known as The Vine Guy. In this podcast, we'll delve into the world of wine with winemakers, wine producers, wine professionals, and wine lovers. We'll even sample a few wines and share which ones are worth your while. In this episode, we talk with Eric Siegelbaum, who was recently named Sommelier of the Year by Food & Wine magazine. He was a chef who developed a love of wine and now has his own business in the wine industry. He tells us what wines blow his mind and the mistakes restaurants make when pairing wine and food. Also, what does it take to make the world's wealthiest wine consumers happy? Well, Eric has some experience with that, and he'll tell us all about his life as a sommelier on a luxury cruise for wine lovers. Eric recently proposed to his girlfriend in grand fashion. It's something every romantic will want to hear about. So, we'll drink in this conversation with Eric Siegelbaum. It is really such a pleasure to have you in the studio today. You and I go back a few years, and, and it's great. Um, I just had no idea that I was sitting in the presence of greatness. Oh, come on. All those times we got together. <laughs> so, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be here, and uh, good to catch up. I've always been fascinated when I talk to, quote, wine people, uh, whether they're psalms or wine directors, who have extensive background in cooking, in the culinary arts, for a couple reasons. First, I'm curious what takes them out of the kitchen and into the cellar. And then second, they really seem to have a knack for pairing food and wine. So, what was the seminal moment behind your transition from chef to psalm? Well, look, at the end of the day, chefs drink a lot. I don't think that's a secret. And uh, as I developed my culinary palate, um, my drinking stopped being so much drinking for alcohol and started gravitating towards drinking for flavor and depth. Um, so the last place I cooked professionally at the Park High at Philadelphia, the sommelier was a friend and would uh, sort of help me by always giving me wines to taste when he had them open, let me sit in on some of his wine training so I could better understand food and wine pairing. So when we did these you know, degustation tasting menus every night that he had to pair to, we could work more collaboratively and I could sort of understand from the wine side of things how to adjust the recipes just as much as he could understand from the recipe side of thing how to pair the wine. So, so the love of wine started there. The, the reality is my transition from the culinary fire into the, the fire of the floor, so to speak, was really based on uh, financial utility and little else. I was uh, watching the captains and sommeliers uh, come in three to four hours after my shift started, and I was always a couple hours ahead of my scheduled shift because you needed to be there early to get your mise en place done. So they'd come in hours after me. They would not be nearly as stressed or busy for most of the night. They'd leave three hours before me, and they'd make three times as much. And as a freshly college-graduated student who put himself through college on his own with crushing student loans debt, uh, that that was ultimately the, the catalyst. I just needed a better source of quick financial income because I had those student loans to take care of. And uh, also, it was it was a bit of circumstance. Uh, I was transferred with Hyatt to help open the Victor, as you mentioned, which... Uh, is sadly no longer in the in the group, but when it did open, it was their first experiential luxury boutique hotel. And uh, in transferring down there, they had hired a concept chef who brought his entire culinary team. So the option was, well, you were the chef de cuisine in Philly of the fine dining French restaurant. You could be a prep cook, I guess, or hey, why don't you work front of the house? So I got my start uh, in front of the house as a, a captain, server, supervisor. And while we were waiting for the hotel to complete construction, they uh, encouraged us, some people, to take the introductory sommelier test, which I passed. 
and I was already into wine and my love just blossomed from there. Then once we opened, it became very clear very quickly that the more I knew about wine, the more money I made. And um, I want to preface this by saying I was, I, I'm not in the business of selling anybody anything, but when it just became so comfortable talking about something so passionately, it was very easy to help guide people into great bottles of wine. And so my tips were better. And and the end of the day, I never turned back from there. Shortly after the hotel opened, the wine director and head sommelier, one quit, one was fired. And I was the only one with any certification at all. And they said, great, you're running it, figure it out. And that was uh, nearly 16 years ago. Yeah, but you took to it like a duck to water. Oh, yeah. You know, um, <laughs> I, uh, I've i always loved wine. I've always loved food. I've always loved flavor. So it was a really easy transition. I'll tell you, though, the operation side was tough. Um, I, I might have been a duck swimming, but uh, I was definitely being pulled down by by a really aggressive carnivorous fish when it comes to actually figuring out the operations, finance, cost of goods, ordering, vendor relations, all these things that really nobody ever teaches sommeliers unless you have a great mentor. And I had no one. I had a, we don't even have any systems, figure it out. So wow. while that was a challenge wow. and a couple really hard years of making some mistakes, uh, at the end of the day, I think it's what set me up for the future successes in my career and help me develop systems that are a little bit different than what other people use, but uh, that work really well for me and uh, and have really helped me get to the point where I am now. Well, staying with the duck theme, <laughs> you know, the secret to you, Eric, is, you know, above water, you just look so calm. And I'm sure underneath <laughs> you're paddling like crazy. You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, one of my culinary mentors years ago, I was working for a chef that was... Uh, the stereotype of not very polite yelling, come in, you guys are terrible. You're not going to make it. This food is garbage. And uh, one of my my chef mentor friends uh, gave me this amazing advice, which I would encourage to everyone. He said, you're a duck. It's water off your back. Every time he's a jerk to you, just quietly quack under your breath. So for years, I would just, I'd be in the kitchen and he'd say something and I'd just be like, just, just loud enough for me to hear. And I'll tell you, it was an amazing psychological tool and it, it became fun for me. I would like, how many times can I quack in night? And suddenly it didn't matter how he was treating me. And Because uh, it really was water off the back. It really was, indeed. Very cool. So we talked about the, this you know, transition, but in the seminal moment, you know, I needed more money. I wanted to get on the floor, better hours, yada, yada. But was there ever a wine? Can, can you think of a wine that you... You first had and went, oh, yeah, that's I, the stuff. I can. Interestingly, though, that happened, I don't know, six, five or six years into my sommelier career. Really? Yeah. So my aha wines have happened along my sommelier trajectory. But it, but unlike perhaps many people, there wasn't like, this is the thing that unlocked wine for me. And suddenly I love wine. I was already drinking wine, but I was drinking some of the more commercially mass produced um things that would appeal to a an entry-level wine drinker, both by price point and by style of flavor. And uh, I enjoyed developing my palate along that path and drinking increasingly more specific and expressive and complex wines. So that was a gradual progression. And, I, and I'll tell you what, the wine that really made me go, oh my God, can such a thing exist? Uh, I helped source two bottles of 1961 Chateau Lafitte Rothschild for somebody's 50th birthday in 2011. And uh, I wanted to criticize the wine. I was finding every reason not to like it. It's 50 years old. Everybody says what a great vintage it is. So go harder on it. Um, you know, all the all the things. It's it's so expensive. So judge it worse. And that was 2011. It's 2019. I can still close my eyes and taste that wine. It's like 
unlike anything I've ever experienced. And, and that was my first of a few aha moments. Uh, the second one being about three years ago, 1976, Tatin J. Comte de Champagne, but just winds up blew my mind and just I was like, I never believed something could be so possible. But it wasn't the thing that got me into wine. It already happened along that wine path. Wow. So do you think you can get a couple more bottles of that Lafitte? Oh, it's available. It's just, uh, <laughs> are you buying or am I? <laughs> I'll split it. Deal. All right. So um, I know you have this passion for pairing food and wine. I mean, just look at the amazing accolade you just received from Food and Wine Magazine. I mean, 2019 Somalia of the Year. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Very, very cool. I'm curious, what do you think some of the biggest mistakes you see diners and maybe even servers uh, make when it comes to pairing wines with food in restaurants? I'm so glad you asked me that. You know what the, I think the really the biggest mistake is? Believing that there are any rules, drink what you want, eat what you want, is my first and foremost rule of food and wine. And if you, you know, as a sommelier offering assistance to a guest who then says, well, I don't know what I'm eating yet, my response inside is, well, I have 800 wines, so why not choose what you want to drink and then eat what you want to eat? And who cares if they don't get along? Because the difference between a great and a bad food and wine pairing is a few moments of patience between sips and bites. That said, I do have a hard and fast, uh, maybe not rule, but there's definitely something that happens a lot that I just don't understand. And that is dry red wine, especially Cabernet and chocolate or dessert. Folks, it just doesn't work. It never will work. There's just anything sweet is going to make that Cabernet taste bitter and sour and terrible. And tannins don't like sugar in that regard. I don't know who decided that Cabernet and chocolate goes, but it's the one of the only absolutes I, I can personally say will never work. I don't care what the wine is. I don't care who the chocolatier is. If Jacques Torres and Lafitte Rothschild got together and said, we're going to make this work, I still don't think it would be that good. Well, I think it was probably the Cabernet uh, Society who came up with the... You know, it very well might be. Um, but, but otherwise, I, I really firmly believe things work that wouldn't be the knee jerk. Um, as an example, at St. Ansem uh, here in DC, which we uh, was the last restaurant I opened with Star, uh, I invested heavily in old Rieslings. And so I used to pair these 60 and 70 ounce ax handle ribeyes with old Riesling and going to a steakhouse tavern and expecting to have a 30 year old Riesling with a big meaty steak is not what most anyone would think, but you'd be amazed how much that works. So don't don't uh, get caught up in in the rules that someone has decided are true when it comes to food and wine. Eat what you want, drink what you want, and be adventurous. So that's interesting because, and this is not a plug for the restaurant. It's not. No, not at I, all. I, I was just there two weeks ago for my birthday. And oh, happy birthday! Oh, thank or, you. Congratulations on your new vintage. <laughs> thank you. Here's to many new more vintage. years in the I cellar. Appreciate it. <laughs> yes, I'd like to think I'm aging well. Uh, it was there for my birthday, and I have to say you've left it in great hands because one of the things that happened. Is, the, uh, the wine director came over, lovely, and she said, um, hey, have you had a chance to look at the wine list? Can I get you started with something? And I said, I don't know what I'm going to eat yet. And she said, well, that doesn't matter. Let's figure out what you want to drink. Oh, that makes me so happy to hear. Vanessa's so, incredible. Vanessa is great. Oh, so, perfect. Vanessa, if you're listening, kudos. I did listen. But I also brought in a 1959 um, Chenin Blanc from the Loire that she treated with such amazing respect and uh, boy, that was a that was a memorable night. We really had a great oh, time. I'm sure. Was it Huet? It was. Ah, oh, yeah. those wines aged so brilliantly. Oh, it well. was. It was absolutely spectacular. So thank you, Vanessa. I'm crashing your next birthday party if you're going to be drinking 50s Huet. <laughs> you're more than welcome to. <laughs> uh, and I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm heading back there again uh, this weekend for my anniversary. So oh, Mazel Tov. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, uh, now we're going to take a step back in time. Tell me a little bit about your experience on the world because you are dealing with, no pun intended, the world's wealthiest 
and I got to believe, pickiest uh, wine consumers on God's green earth. Mm-hmm. Um, the the unofficial version of the clientele of the world, just from a demographic standpoint, this is just my own quote, is 1% of the 1%. Um, but if uh, to imagine this environment, imagine a, a ship the size of a 2,000 passenger cruise ship. And in that same space, there's 165 apartments. These are not small cabins. These are, you know, thousands of square feet. And these are people with, every, you know, every resident on that ship had the resources to have their own 100 foot private yacht easily or bigger. And the idea behind this was travel the world without leaving the comforts of home and a real sense of community. So. They actually, it's not so much, I wouldn't call it picky, but the residents had spent their lives figuring out what they like, what they want, what they don't like. We're at a resource point where they could pretty much have it all. And so we're actually very trusting of myself and, uh, you know, the, 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 the crew of the world to provide them with the things that they've identified, self-identified that they like without having to think about it. So um, there were definitely some some residents that were particular, to be honest, we were their family. I never felt like staff. I never felt like crew. I never felt like the help. Um, and maybe that's because I had a unique position with with wine, but they were just so uh, wonderfully kind to us all. Some of their guests occasionally, uh, maybe not so much, mm. but, um, but it's not what you'd think. Everyone was just so lovely. And really, especially when it came to wine, just so experimental. They'd be like, Eric, you know what we like to drink. Pick something for us. And the great thing about that is knowing that the budget doesn't matter. And again, like I don't sell wine. I've never sold a bottle of wine in my life. In fact, um, when I do trainings for restaurants or whatnot, and and uh, I always ask, okay, so I've been a sommelier 16 years. How many bottles of wine do you think I've sold? And I'll get, I don't know, 200,000, 500,000, whatever. I'll say, no, it's less. How many? 50,000, less. And somewhere around two to 500, they start realizing there's no way this is possible if you've been doing this for 16 years. And then it clicks. Somebody's eyes light up and they go, zero. I say precisely, as a sommelier, I don't sell wine. I'm a matchmaker. I'm wine yenta. I love it. I don't care about the transaction, and and the best sommeliers will agree. The transaction is irrelevant. It's the situation. It's the relationship. So parlaying that back to the world, being in an environment where the transaction doesn't matter because the residents own a portion of the vessel and the inventory as well. So the costs of the wines, by the way, the best price you'll ever see for wine in the world, the markups were just enough to cover the cost of sourcing the wine, getting it to the vessel, staffing the crew and serving it. So, you know, for instance, all of our DRC was $200 over cost because the ship wasn't trying to make money on it. It was their sort of owned product anyway. It was their seller. It was basically their seller that they fractionally all own. So there was still, you know, a financial transaction. Sure. But but it's amazing to be able to not have to worry about the right-hand column and just be able to just expand people's minds in whatever way makes sense and and introduce them. Had a lot of old Hewitt on there, for instance, but just introduce them to things they wouldn't normally drink because somebody told them they drink California Cabernet, therefore that's what they drink. But really, most Cali Cab drinkers, when they describe what they like, start describing Northern Rhone Syrah by flavor profile. So I got to have a whole lot of fun with, well, I know you drink Screaming Eagle, but let's try this uh, La Landon from 20 years ago. It's completely different. And just see their eyes go, wow, who'd have thought? Love the Lalas. Yeah, who doesn't? Yep, yep, right. (laughs) So this is kind of a cute aside. Uh, I have an acquaintance who had a condo, or as he referred to it as a condo on on the world. Good friend um, to have. (laughs) He said, when Eric Siegelbaum left the ship, 
I sold my condo. No, you've got to be kidding me. Really? It could have been coincidental, but that's what he told me. Oh, wow. I I hope I wasn't the catalyst for that, but that is such a a goose-bumping, heartwarming compliment. And oh, you know what? When we're off air, I'll tell you who it was. Yeah, I need to know who this was. (laughs) (laughs) But he did say that was the reason he sold. Aw. So, now, just out of curiosity, we're going to move back onto land. Mm -hmm. How many restaurants are currently in the Star Restaurant Group? So when I left, it was 38, with the most recent addition having been St. Ansem. However, uh, Star, and it was hard to leave during this timeline because I knew it was coming. Star just reopened the iconic pastis in New York. Oh, cool. So now they're at 39, and that was a, a collaboration with Keith McNally, who owned the original one and who owns Balthazar, and very much the inspiration for La Diplomat, in fact, in Park in Philly. Uh, you know, Stephen Starr and Keith McNally were friends, and Keith had a stroke and was telling Stephen, basically, I can't, I was going to reopen pastis, but I can't. And Stephen's like, Let's do it together because I know how to open a French brasserie. And so I, I want to say it's three weeks old now. Yep. Um, I had just started working on the build of the wine program for Pastis when I when I chose to leave Star. So it was a really hard decision because I knew it would be fun. But the way that Star opens restaurants, there's already two more coming in New York, one more in Philly. Uh, so, you know, there, there was always going to be a new project. And at some point I had to just say, OK, it's time. But uh, but yeah, right now it's, I believe, 39 and uh by the end of summer, that number will probably be 41. And by the end of the year, that'll probably be 42. And he's, he's a machine. So the reason I ask, and, and because we just talked about the world where you had, you know, kind of a captive audience, right? Mm-hmm. 165 cabins um, or so, uh, and really was a captive audience. I mean, you're on a ship yep. right? to this restaurant group that is, is very uh, impressive, very large. What were your challenges as the as the wine director trying to figure out what do you have in each location and uh, this is it just sounds so daunting to me. I mean, it's a pretty massive operation. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I was overseeing roughly a hundred million dollars a year in beverage um, and thirty eight restaurants. But what's important to know is the star restaurants are all different. So even though there are two Budicons and there are three Elvezes, depending on, you know, in various cities, they're all very different restaurants and very different programs. So it's not like overseeing a chain steakhouse where 90% of the list is the same for everyone. Really, it was having my finger on the pulse of 38 restaurants in six different cities um, in completely different markets, knowing that the wine list in Elvez, Miami, for instance, was a very, or sorry, Elvez, Fort Lauderdale, was a very different wine list than Elvez, New York and a very different wine list in Elvez, Philadelphia. So really, it's basically like managing 38 different children at different points in their life. Um, Did you have your favorite? No. Because, I, 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 boys, I love you, but I have my favorite. Um, it's hard to have a favorite, but if you really were going to like rake me over the coals, it would be Serpico in Philadelphia, Peter Serpico's restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of the quiet star restaurants in that it's in a terrible neighborhood. Not very many people know about it, but it is off the charts incredible. Um, it's trite to just cherry pick the best, but uh, Le Cuckoo, I mean, you, in New York, we opened that and it award was received the uh, James Beard Best New Restaurant in the Country shortly after Michelin Star. Right. So uh, I can't not not think fondly of that restaurant too. But really, you know, Stephen's concepts are just so great, and I had so much fun with all of them. Really, and, so, and I assume you had somewhat of a free reign. I mean, in for the most looking part, looking at these lists and trying to pick what goes where. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day. Um, the there I never felt like a tight yoke in terms of what I was doing, but at the same token, it's because I did things not primarily as passion projects, but primarily as business minded. So I wasn't buying things that wouldn't make sense to the operation. I was really building lists with the idea of the concept in mind. And I think after years of seeing that happen, it was kind of like, you can do what you want, which is why St. Ansem, 
here in DC really became my love letter to everybody who loves wine. And I did a lot of things I've never done and always wanted to do on a wine list. For instance, chilled reds. There's a whole chilled red section of 80 or so wines when we opened. And in fact, the wines I brought today are both chilled reds. Yes, which Carl is very fond of. Yes, I, uh, I love the Carl. Yes, the Carl is great. He really is. Um, so so now, let's say you okay, you win from the world, then you you went into the Star Restaurant Group. Amazing. You know, you, you got all this amazing success right at your fingertips. And then you leave. Right. Well, but the thing is, I didn't leave the industry. I just changed my position in it. Um, so I, I started sommelier, and it's S-O-M-L-Y-A-Y. So like, sommelier, uh, for two reasons. One, <laughs> Very I got re- cute, by the way. Very cute. Oh, thanks. Love the spelling. Well, number one, I, I got really tired of people uh, not knowing how to pronounce it. I am not from Somalia. I'm not a Samarne. I'm not a Samelian. Um, so one, it was just like, here, let me help you pronounce it. But but I think the yay kind of speaks to my personality a little bit. And I'm certainly passionate. A little bit? Okay, a lot. <laughs> I'm certainly passionate and excited about wine. Um, and, you know, there comes a point where you are solely responsible for so many pieces of a puzzle and constantly opening, you know, I think I opened 14 or 15 restaurants in my five and a half years with Steven, uh, that you, it does start to impact your quality of life. And uh, I was kind of getting the point while I'm not old, you know, I'm pushing, getting close to 40 and, you know, working service all the time and being, you know, constantly in demand all the time. It it was time for maybe a little shift of quality of life. Uh, I knew I was going to be getting engaged and I really wanted to spend more time with my fiance, which, you know, when we opened St. Ansem, I checked into a hotel for 99 nights. A hundred days later, I checked out. And during those hundred days, I saw my partner maybe, I don't know, 20 days, maybe. And I realized if I could start controlling my schedule, then uh, that would be a great thing. But also, I, I noticed a couple things that I felt were really lacking in the business. Uh, so if I may, I'll explain what Sumley is. Thank you. Perfect. I was just, just going to ask. Excellent. So so it's really, it's really everything related to beverage and hospitality, but with three sort of principal arms of operation. The first one is uh, I advise hotels and restaurants. I hate the word consultant. I don't know a better word. Other than that's what I do that expresses it as succinctly. So yeah, I'm a consultant, but so I advise hotels and restaurants, whether existing or new openings on every facet of their beverage program from how to, how to develop your menu as a sales tool, not just a document of information, how to build a program that wins awards. If you care about awards, training your staff, training your sommeliers or your beverage managers, um, sourcing the product, building a balanced program, getting access to allocated wines, helping with your national accounts program if you have them, whatever it is that you need for a, a, a food service beverage operation in any way, shape or form, I will help. The second arm I really thought was the most underserved part of this industry, and that is the supply side. So I, some of my clients include wineries, breweries, distilleries, importers, distributors, brand associational or sorry, brand associations, marketing groups, regional associations. And I really felt like there was nobody advising them how to speak buyer and how to improve their business activities through the lens of a buyer. And the buyers, whether they're sommeliers or beverage managers, they're their customers. And there was such a disconnect with understanding even what the life of their customers was, let alone how to really meaningfully interact with them. And, uh, you know, that was most expressed to me, especially on like the marketing activity side of things and the regional associations. I had been to hundreds of very well-funded, very well-conceived wine education things on behalf of wines of this region, wines of that region, this producer's association. And almost every single time I found myself thinking, A, the room doesn't really have the right people in it in terms of like the right buying power and the people that have the restaurants that would make sense for these products. 
But even if they did have the right people in the room, it was the exact same presentation hundreds of times over with different words. Every region was presenting everything the same way. And while the facts were there, they just weren't resonating with buyers because they weren't speaking buyer. They were speaking, here are the rules, here's the subregions, here's the whatever. And that's great, but we can study that on a website. So I, I realized they need somebody who can not train on what, and I don't ever train on what. You can learn the what. And if I have to, I train on a little bit of what, but on the how and why. So how are the wines from this region relevant? How do you work them into your program? How would you list them? Why would you choose to list them this way versus that? How do you train your staff? Why would you uh, work them into this kind of a pairing? How would you express that to your guests? Why would your guests want these wines? That's how I train. It's a very different thing. And actually, I'll give you a really good example of that, even though this is a restaurant, not the supply side. St. Ansem, I, again, not, this is not in any way, shape or form trying to be advertising for them, but since it's the last restaurant I built, it's pretty close to home. I decided because I love Madeira, I wanted to build one of the best Madeira programs in the country, not necessarily biggest, but best. So we opened with over 50 Madeiras going all the way back to the 1800s, but as young as, you know, some young five-year non-vintage things, everything priced by the ounce so that they're accessible. So you can get an ounce of Madeira for as inexpensive as $4 or as much as I think the most expensive one from an 1800 Solera is like 100 and $26. In two hours of pre-opening training, I spent maybe 12 minutes talking to the staff about what Madeira is. What are the grapes? What are the production methods? The rest of it was, how does it pair? What food does it go with? Why is it relevant? The history of, de of not just the district, but of the country. And, you know, George Washington and Betsy Ross were huge Madeira fans. And that we can owe the Virginia and by some extent, the entire American wine industry, the fact that Jefferson tried to recreate Madeira here and failed miserably, but the point is that's what helped viticulture start here. So there's so much history and story and connectivity. I don't know if many people on that service team can really tell you the ins and outs of the of, of production methods and laws of what a colieta means versus a fresquiera and a stufa process versus cantiera process. But my goodness, can they tell you why Cerciel Madeira and oysters is the most amazing food and wine pairing of your life? By the way, next time you go, if you eat oysters, order the oysters, order a Cerciel Madeira, eat the oyster, Pour some of that Cerciel into the shell, drink it out of the shell. It's the single greatest food and wine pairing I've ever experienced. So, okay. All righty then. So that's the way Saturday, I... Saturday? There you <laughs> Saturday go. Saturday it is. So that so that's the way I do things. And and for the marketing people as well, the last arm of sommelier is private events, private wine education. I'm doing a couple public wine events for the Smithsonian, um, which are, you know, in the end of September, anyone can sign up and buy a ticket to the class. So, so education in all forms and, and working the industry in all forms. And I'm just so fulfilled by doing it. Very, very cool. I've actually done that, by the way, I've taught for the Smithsonian and you will meet the nicest people. They just, they all, they're there. They just want to learn. So yeah. you're, you're going to have a blast. Have you My done kind that of before? Uh, not for Smithsonian, but yeah, I've done so much private consumer event and private education stuff. Yeah. I don't know what it is about the Smithsonian, but they just really seem to attract that. Now you, you had, you had mentioned earlier that you had spent 99 nights in a hotel room, barely saw your partner, you know, 20 nights. Let's, we're going to now. normally folks, this is the time in the, in the, podcast where we go right into the wine drinking. I am not letting Eric off the hook <laughs> until he tells this story. Your partner, Ryan. Yes. Yeah. Lovely. She's um, incredible. She is. I have to say, I, I have not yet met her, but everyone I've, I've spoken to uh, who knows her and know you have just said, this is really a genuine love story. So I'm, I'm very excited about this. Absolutely. And, and I'm not letting you out of here until you tell me about how 
you came up with the idea of your marriage proposal. And then I need you to tell us a little bit about how you pulled it off. Because uh, I've, I've told a few women of this story, and they just burst into tears. Uh, you know, Because they think it's so romantic. And I will just say, you're a bit of an ass for ruining <laughs> it for every single guy that ever has to propose to another woman ever in their life. Sorry. So, aside from Not ruining sorry. it for, uh, for everybody else, tell us about this. Absolutely. Amazing Amazing story. It's a long one, so I'll try to keep it brief um, because it's something I'm very excited about and happy to share. Uh, before I met Ryan, she, you know, I didn't really believe in love of my life or soulmate. I thought those were terms that people use, but I really just didn't believe it. And then years with her, I realized, no, this is this is what people mean when they say that. And so I needed an appropriately recognizable, significant gesture to make sure she knew that she is the most important entity in my entire existence. Um, so I spent about two years conceptualizing and eight months of active planning and worked with the amazing people at Smithsonian um, and basically worked her engagement ring into an exhibit at the Museum of African Art. If you haven't been to the Smithsonian Museum of African Art, now to be clear, it's not the Museum of African American History. That's the new building on um, Constitution. This is the one on Independence. It's largely underground, so not even many people know about it. Um, it's right next to the Smithsonian Castle. It is I believe for sure in the U.S., I believe in the world, the only museum dedicated completely to African art. Many museums have an African installation. This one is only African art. It's an incredible museum. So the reason for that museum is a fewfold. Number one, we love museums and galleries and, and wanted to make a concerted effort to go to more of them. Number two, they have a semi-permanent installation there called Good as Gold, and it's all about powerful female jewelers, specifically Senegalese goldsmiths. But I thought it was appropriate to recognize her as an amazing, strong woman in an exhibit of amazing strong women. It was also organic to have a ring in a jewelry exhibit, but most importantly, I needed this to be an absolute surprise. So the the subterfuge here was that it needed to tie into wine education. And we pretended I was doing an, a South African wine tasting at the Museum of African Art. And that's what made it organic. I couldn't do that at the Air and Space. Why would you taste wine at Air and Space or, right. or natural history or whatever? So um, when I first proposed it, I'm like, oh, that's not possible. And I just think they might have gotten caught up into the romanticism of it a little bit that they let me pull it off. But in a nutshell, we pretended I was doing a wine class and that I was going to have to go there to do a site walkthrough. Um, so I had like, this is Ocean's Eleven style heist. I spent so long planning every minor detail. Only I put a ring in a, in a or diamond in a museum instead of stealing one from. But I had like a, a non-attributed email address. I had code words for the Smithsonian people. So if I needed to check the secret email, they would say, hey, I have a wine question. They'd text me that. Or oh if, if, they had re, if they had replied to something, they would text me, uh, thank you for the wine recommendation. That way, just in case she saw that message, she wouldn't be suspicious about it. Um, and so we, I had them send me an, e an email that I actually wrote and then sent to them from the secret email. They tweaked and sent back to me saying, basically confirming the date of this class that you're doing. We need you to come do a walkthrough, a bunch of boring, just like event information. Um, we need to come do a walkthrough just to get an idea of setup and whatever. This is the date we've chosen. By the way, we're also hosting at that on, on that day and at that time, the ambassador of South Africa um, and the director of Smithsonian Events. So we've arranged for a little private formal lunch with you and your girlfriend, Ryan, question mark, with her name purposefully misspelled again, so as not to arouse suspicion, um, to join us. <laughs> sub so, subdiffusion. Exactly. <laughs> what was really important, I'll tell you why that part was so important. I needed her to have to commit to not be able to back out for whatever reason. Right. Also to have a reason to be dressed formally with hair, makeup, all that early in the morning on a Wednesday because I knew she was going to want to be dressed up for photos when we got engaged. And so 
it would have oh, been suspicious man. to be like, you should get dressed really formally for us to do an event walkthrough. So that was the real reason behind that. No South African ambassador was present uh, in the making of this proposal other than uh, in an email. So um, the day comes, we show up. I pretend I've never been there. Of course, I'd been there. I pretend I didn't know the people there. Of course, I know them. They did an incredible job. Absolutely incredible job. Um, in playing the part, they took us around. We planned this. We started talking about table setup and glassware and all that for this fake event that was never going to happen. Started walking us around the exhibits and explaining things, walked us into the good as gold exhibit. And, uh, eventually after explaining a bunch of the different pieces of beading and filigree and whatever, it was like, oh, there's one more thing that you might be interested in. They walked us over. Now, I'd worked with their lighting director to light it, their yeah. mount maker to mount yeah. it, their historian for the text. They had built a case for it that matched the rest of the case. So this just looked like any other thing in the exhibit. And it was stunning. I got to oh, tell thank you, you, folks, go online and look at these pictures. In fact, the Washingtonian picked it up. So there is actually an article uh, in the Washingtonian mag uh, digitally. Um, I think it's called like a fake uh, a fake exhibit. I don't know. If, if you just Google Washingtonian in my name, Eric right. Sagelbaum, it'll come up. Yep. But, um, and I have. So, <laughs> so she sees it and she just thinks it's a beautiful ring and there's no, it, it didn't connect to her that there's anything was different. And then she saw her name and looked very confused and looked over me like, why is my name in this? But still didn't really read it because it just didn't make sense. And then as I had arranged with security, they actually didn't put a case on top of it. So she didn't even notice that. So I then reached into a museum piece, removed a ring. She just turned to me and she said, is this happening? I was like, oh yeah, it's happening. Um, so I got down on my knee and she's so lovely and we are so connected. She immediately got down on her knees and I'm like, what are you doing down here? Get back up there. Scram, get back up there. I'm trying to do a thing here. Uh, she started crying. I started crying, but it was just absolute pure, just a pure, beautiful expression of love. And I can't thank the people at the Smithsonian for helping let us do this enough. So I don't really think technically they were allowed to do something like that, but it doesn't say anywhere in the bylaws you can't help somebody get engaged with a fake exhibit. So, you know, yeah, there you have there it. You go. But I'm going to ask you one one last question about this. All right. What did the exhibit say? Oh, well, let me read that to you, in fact. So their historians were great. So we wanted something that made sense to, uh, to you know, the the what was going on. And so the verbiage that we came up with, and, and, you know, it was my idea that I wanted her to read that we were getting engaged in this exhibit. And again, this was a Senegalese thing. So I'm going to read you what it says. In Senegal, women are often gifted jewelry during significant life milestones. Oftentimes, precious stones are used to convey the importance of the event. For example, diamond rings such as this one are used for betrothals. On loan from the collection of Ryan Deering, gifted to her on May 9, 2019, on the occasion of her engagement to Eric Sagelbaum. Wow. So that's how she found out I was proposing. Drop the mic. I mean, she's worth it. What can I say? That's awesome. Well, <laughs> first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Mazel tov. Thank you Very so happy much. for you. And now, the moment we've all been waiting for. We're going to move into our, our wine tasting here. I noticed that you have two red wines, both chilled. That's right. So why chilled? Tell me about this. What are we doing? So what's the deal? Red wines, some red wines take to a chill very well. First of all, it's summer and it's warm and it's a great time to bring out the freshness and vivacity of certain wines. Um, I love chilled red wines at home. We drink a lot of red wines chilled. My general rule for this is tannins don't like the cold. If you chill a wine that it doesn't have to be high tannic wine, but if you chill a wine that has very pronounced tannins, they're mm. going to become really astringent, sort of scratchy when you drink it. Hmm. So we chill. Um, I When I say light, I don't mean lighter bodied. I just mean brighter, fresher, more vivacious wines, things that have a, like that really have a lot of fruit purity and a lot of brightness to them. And to be clear, fruit purity, I don't mean fruit concentration. The analogy I use for that is like if you eat cherries, you know how like every once in a while you get one that really tastes like cherry? Yeah. That's fruit purity. Fruit concentration would be like Cherry Jolly Rancher. 
right? So, so these just any wine that has like really bright fruit, not too much earthiness to it, no oak, not so much tannin, but just like bright, fresh acidity. These red wines chill really well. So, um, I brought two that we love to drink uh, these varietals in these regions, and that's uh, really take well to being cold. Uh, the first is a, a Cru Beaujolais. So, uh, the Cru itself, the the sub region is Juliana. And for those of you that might be familiar with Beaujolais, Beaujolais Nouveau, couldn't be like night and day different. They have the same in common as white Zinfandel and serious dry rosés. So this is uh, in the, they call it a quality pyramid, but I prefer to call it a specificity pyramid. But this is the top, most specific, most stringent rules of the wines of Beaujolais. 100% Gamay. I like alliteratives and I like to take complicated things and make them easy. So there's 10 crews of Beaujolais and it's a really popular study question for a sommelier. What are the crews of Beaujolais? A better question is, Describe each crew with a word or two. And I lo- like I said, I love alliterative. So Julianat for me is always juicy. Well. Flurry, floral, Moulin Avant and Morgan, uh, macho, um, Santa More, savory. And so, and this is something I train staff with. It's like, now you can understand 10 regions with 10 words or five regions with five, five words. But I love this Julianat. Um, the producer is uh, Stefan Aviron. Just a, a really wonderful modern style producer. And by modern, I don't wow. mean new winery as much as I mean making Gamay in Beaujolais like most people make the highest quality Pinot Noirs in Grand Cru Burgundy. It feels like somebody is literally standing on my tongue with with a, a kind of, a, how would I explain this? Kind of a, a, a garden hose of cherry. Yeah. Just sort That's of, a great way to describe sp- it. You know, just kind of spraying it over the tongue. And mm-hmm. I mean, over the entire tongue, you know, from tip to back. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful, and it's that slight chill on it. It's it's refreshing. It's exactly, and I'm I'm just really, you know, I can't actually stop. So I I've only done this empirically. I don't have any scientific evidence to support this, but I firmly believe that the right wines chilled actually improve when cold rather than um, get subdued by by like muting mm. muting the flavors. This is a perfect example of that. That is that is really delicious. Yeah. And if you don't have Beaujolais at home in your cellar, invest in Beaujolais because the most expensive of the best crew of the most specific individual vineyard site, the most of the best, most unicorn producer will maybe set you back 40 to $50 retail wow. versus what does that give you in Burgundy? A mediocre village level, not so great, not not great vintage wine. So as a sommelier, I care about value. And that doesn't mean inexpensive. It just means at any price point, the wine right. has to over-deliver. And Beaujolais, right. from its least to most expensive, is a very small delta. And for me, always delivers happiness. I'm sorry, what, what vintage is this again? So this is a 2016. 16. The other great thing about Beaujolais is that from 2009 to 2016, there there was really only one vintage that it wasn't even so much of a challenge. It was just a little bit of a shorter vintage, unlike Burgundy that had some real challenges between those. It's like 09 was extraordinary. 10 was classic. 11 was much like 09. 12, uh, you know, was a little bit short. 13 was great again. 14 was exceptional again. 15 was extraordinary. Um, you get a lot less vintage variation in quality in Beaujolais than you do in, in other parts of Burgundy. So it, you don't need to be so worried as much as am I picking the wrong wine? And for people that are particular about, say, ageability, um, what what is the ageability on a wine like this? I mean, we're drinking 2016 to 2019. Is it something like, am I drinking at its peak? Can it go a couple more years? You know? I, I'm so glad you asked that question. You don't see a lot of age Beaujolais, and, and, I, and I have put this thought question, or this thought exercise out a lot. Is it because people don't believe that Beaujolais can age or because it's so fresh and delicious that nobody is willing to wait for it to age? Um, I would suggest that this wine is both 
beautifully ready to drink now and will continue to be so for the next 10, 20, even 30 years. And I've had some recently had some Beaujolais from the 80s, some crew Beaujolais from the 80s. I wouldn't age Nouveau, probably wouldn't age Village, or I probably wouldn't age just like AOP Beaujolais, but Village right. or crew. Right. I've had some stuff from the 80s. Those things to me taste more like Northern Rhone Syrah when they're old than they do like really? Gamay. Like Crow's Hermitage, Cote Roti style, like incredible stuff. Um, Gamay. Gamay. Gamay can age. People just don't think that it can. But it is absolutely incredible. Okay. And I'd highly encourage you, if you have the diligence and the patience, look, a case of, of even the best Cru Beaujolais uh, is maybe only a couple hundred dollars, and you can lay that down in every you know two to three years, try another one and, and have the experiment for yourself. Or even still, if you can find it, Old Beaujolais is not expensive. Mind blown. So worth it. Oh, I'm so happy. Okay, very cool. On to the second one. Also, another chilled red. Indeed. We're going to switch gears and head up to Italy, to Piedmont. Um, this is a Dolcetto. Uh, the producer is Pecanino, and the appellation is San Luigi Doliani. This is actually uh, 2017, so 100% Dolcetto. Uh, the cool thing about San Luigi Doliani is a relatively new appellation, and, and it was basically done for a couple reasons. But, you know, as, as I'm sure you all know, in Piedmont, Nebbiolo is king. It's the grape mm-hmm. of Barolo and Barbaresco. Mm-hmm. And Dolcetto uh, is, was really, the plantings were being, old vin- vineyards were being ripped up in favor of Nebbiolo. And the reason is Nebbiolo has a much more international prestigious reputation. Therefore, if you're a farmer, remember, like, you don't see farmers on private jets driving Aston Martins, right? These people work their whole life to barely make ends meet. And if you're a farmer, the economic utility of growing Dolcetto over Nebbiolo is crazy. It's harder to grow. It's more expensive to grow and you can sell it for less. So this appellation was created really to help sort of A, protect some of those old vines and B, it's a DOCG, which is the top of the quality slash specificity pyramid. So it allows those farmers to get a little bit more of a premium for putting in the effort and the time and the love on this incredible grape. And I'll, I'll tell you, as a sommelier, Pecanino is one of the best I think I told you before, I don't deal in absolutes. I don't have favorites. I don't have best. This Pecanino Dolcetto, I think, is the best Dolcetto and absolutely my favorite. So, you know, hats off for them. Again, it's like retail. It's between $17 and $22. Find me even a Langa Nebbiolo that delivers this wow. deliciously at that price point. Yeah, you just um, can't. Even at twice the price. So I just need a bowl of, of mushroom risotto. Mm-hmm. This is just, I mean, the forest floor flavors that are popping through on this. You know, it's just amazing i'm getting this great forest undergrowth this wonderful mushroomy mm-hmm. um just this almost like an umami yeah uh if you will just kind of dancing and bright in, in there and fresh and it delicious is. and well structured so what i love about dolcetto i'm glad you mentioned uh that risotto as a general hack for food and wine pairing to me dolcetto is any pizza and this could be like ne- neapolitan style like wood burning oven with you know stracciatella and uh, prosciutto and fresh arugula, or it could be Domino's or anything in between. Dolcetto goes with any pizza, any toppings. It goes with any pasta, whether it's a a truffle-based sauce, a mushroomy sauce, a tomato-based sauce, a seafood thing with a lot of citrus, whether it's garlic and herbs and oil. Dolcetto goes pretty well with all of that. I can see that. Also barbecue. So I figured it's summer. I'm going to bring wines that are refreshing and that Mm -hmm. go well with summer food. Dolcetto and barbecue is a beautiful mix. great with my ribs. Let's Barbecue get your ribs. ribs out. Yeah, let's get your ribs out here and try it. Yeah, I gotta tell you because they're a little sweet, little heat, and, and I think this would just go great because it's so refreshing and it's got. Now you say you know we talk about tannins and, and Dolcetto doesn't you know t- typically have much tannins, but there's there's some good structure in this wine, and that's that that's what lets it take so well to a chill and what improves it. There is structure, and it's not that like like people think of both 
Gamay, especially in Beaujolais and Dolcetto, that they can't be tannic. It's not that they can't. These, I'd say, are like on a both of these wines are maybe medium tannins. Yeah, they're medium, but they're it's fine. the texture that matters. Yep. They are creamy and soft. It's like swallowing silk versus other uh, medium tannic wines that it's more like chalky, powdery, astringent. And and those are the ones that I just wouldn't chill. So what I love, you know, texture is such an important thing. What I love of Gamay, especially in Beaujolais and Dolcetto, especially in Piedmont, is it's got that wonderful, silky, rich texture, but bright, fresh acidity. You spoke to the sort of foresty underbrush, and it just makes it so food friendly, so non-food friendly if you just want to drink it on its it own. It really is, yeah. And, you know, I just, I love the balance in both of these wines. Yeah. The balance is just pitch perfect. I wasn't going to bring you something that wasn't worth drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a real pleasure Mine to as have well. you here in the studio. Thank you. Uh, I just feel like, what a treat. What a, what a, a fantastic, thank you so much for taking the time. It's just been it's just been great. And Eric, just take us home again. Remind us of what are the two wines that we tried today? Absolutely. So the first wine was Stéphane Aviron Cru Beaujolais, and the specific crew is Juliana, J-U-L-I-E-N-A-S, uh, 2016 vintage, imported by Frederick Wildman. And then the other was the Pecanino uh, San Luigi Doliani, which is the Appalachian. Grape is Dolcetto, 2017, imported by VS Imports. Both of these wines for sure have retail presence, and I've definitely seen them on restaurant lists. So the other thing is I wanted everyone who's uh, kind enough to listen to have wine, uh, to have us talk about wines that you can actually find and taste yourself, not just some unicorn that you'll never see. Very cool. Well, once again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it has been a, a real treat. Thanks so much for listening to The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. You can find those wines we listed on the episode's description on the Podcast One page. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at The Vine Guy and catch my Wine of the Week segments on WTOP Radio and WTOP.com. Sarah Beth Hensley produced this episode. Music for this episode is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Until the next time, do good, drink well.